Who's Who on the Cosmic Scene, is copyright 2023 by Laszlo Salieri for the House of Forbidden Knowledge. All rights reserved. Most religions provide a list of entities to whom humans are mere ants. The more interesting the religion, the longer the list, and the more of the entities on that list that would be either indifferent to the existence of humanity in general and inimical to a number of humans in specific. This being the whole point of any religion, to provide a list of suspects whom you possibly pissed off in order to experience the terrible run of luck you've been having. Neglected ancestors, trespassed upon nature's spirits, malicious devils, depraved hybrids of humans and devils and animals, petty deities and demigods in petty squabbles with one another using hapless mortals as pawns, bored weather gods, unpropitiated protectors of whatever prey you decided to hunt today, harvest deities that run a little bloodthirsty now and then, plus whatever it is you have to do to keep the pilot light on the sunlit when the cold times come around. If you reduce that list to a single name, then it's obvious your whole religion revolves around a neurotic, jealous, psychopathic control freak, secretly at war with itself, who has to have everything, just so, despite the lengthy scrolls of conflicting laws. Where's the entertainment in that? The factual world is better. Most of the terrible stuff that happens to you is just rotten luck, but, also, there are hugely powerful entities that will smash you without even being aware of your existence, and who will smash you even harder if you manage to attract their attention, and even a few who score themselves points on the soul-wrenching depth and volume of the human screams they elicit, because everyone has to have a hobby. If you're wondering what would make an entity so cruel, just keep in mind that people make careers of harvesting flowers for their brightness and shapely forms and the strength and delicacy of their pleasing odors and make a big deal of crafting them into exquisite arrangements, all quite temporary, of course, and serving little purpose beyond the aesthetic, without asking the plants whose genitals they are amputating what they think about this whole scenario. People farm them for it, these flowering plants. I'm saying there's an analogy to be made. Perhaps the plants have even adapted to it somewhat over thousands of years of domestication. And the analogy continues to extend. Most of the major forces that impart action to the elements of the universe are so consistently impartial to the actual contents of the universe that it seems pointless to impute agency to them. As pervasive and all-powerful as these forces are, we classify them as phenomena, as the more or less inert terrain that shapes everything. We study them in physics and chemistry classes. We describe and predict their behaviors with concrete mathematical certainty. Hardcore materialists start to get a little twitchy, however, when the predictive maths fail and things turn stochastic rather than directly deterministic, when behaviors turn non-linear and chaotic. This behavior, even though we consider it to be a bit weird, is literally inevitable at the boundary between any two domains of strong influence. Feel free to test this by introducing that third body of mass, no matter how small or insignificant, to any stable system of two gravitically bound bodies in neutral orbit. 
the universe is by percentages and averages largely pelagic deeps of varying sizes where one force or another holds dominant sway and nothing of interest happens, but the interfaces where these exploding slash imploding bubbles, this conjuries of iridescent spheres, meet is the spongy structure of the galactic clusters and superclusters that we see when we look deeper and deeper into the abyss. There is something that swims at the bottom of those abyssal deserts, something bloated to incalculable proportions on a steady diet of the cosmic equivalent of marine snow and the steady infall of space-time, but it's not for you to meet it. Also you wouldn't enjoy it, being just another minuscule particle of that cosmic equivalent of marine snow. It's merely a quirk of topology that there is only one deep, and therefore only one, something, at the bottom of it, no matter how numerous the spheres of emptiness seem to us. Here on the brighter surfaces of the spheres, embedded in the spongy, frothy foam between them, is where the smaller forces build their lesser baronies of active and passive galactic cores, of post-stellar black holes and furiously spinning magnetically charged corpses of degenerate matter, of stellar nurseries and stellar nursing homes forming the airsets atoms and molecules of larger creatures made of lanes of dust and magnetically torqued plasmas, maliciously disruptive as individuals yet. Placid as grazing cows as aggregate colonial entities, unless you think of those cows as might a blade of grass. These aggregate entities operate on timescales bordering on the ridiculous, millennia to the generation, but that's plenty of time to learn a few things. The smaller, lesser entities of which they are comprised are nastier work. If you think of it religiously, it makes sense. The pantheon as a whole enforces a status quo. The individual deities that compose the pantheon are scheming nightmares made of unchecked appetites. Think about it. If you're a microbe learning of megafauna, you'd see a whole animal as a resource-rich terrain, possibly containing a suitable place to thrive for as long as you could remain unobtrusive and undiscovered and avoid accidents. But if you were to invade a bit too personally, you would be stalked and slain by interior processes. Destroyed and consumed out of hand. Dismembered for parts or worse, subdued and farmed for whatever resources you could produce for your new masters. As they say, as below, so above. In any multicellular creature, even your own original body, the cells are vastly more intelligent than the aggregate, laser-focused and jealous of their resources. They can be loyal and tight-knit with their own tissues up to a point. Cooperation is also self-serving in a sufficiently evolved and stable organism. But the aggregate organism can be as dumb as toast. Consider it the committee effect. These are the dynamics once member creatures have given up their mobility to be a part of something larger and more stable. Some of these near deities have given up nothing, have committed to nothing. Their only true checks and balances are one another. Everything else is terrain or resources to be managed or tamed or sorted by relative value and hoarded. We've given some of these entities names because it amuses us to do so.
because they map points on a larger terrain, because sometimes their inclinations resonate on smaller scales that are relevant to us and our own interests and we're forced to talk about them, but it's best not to use their own names for themselves. At what point do you feel would it ever be good to draw their direct attention? To let them know what we exist as an annoyance to be purged or a resource to be domesticated or farmed or assimilated. How lovely would our shapes be to them? How attractive and delicate might be our scents? What delicious timbers might our shrieks have? If properly baked or fried, would we stay crunchy in milk? Or would they just render down our fat for loop for the machinery of their civilization? Admittedly, that's not much worse than many people could expect from their neighbors in the sunlit world topside. Which should make you think, is their influence already here? Or are our horrors 100% homegrown? Just kidding. There's another course later in your scheduled study programs that will detail the specifics of various human organizational cultures as predatory and parasitic organisms, complete with detailed taxonomies and studies in operational psychomechanics. We're not covering that today. But perhaps you should be aware that certain pathways exist for external cosmic entities of the sort we've been discussing to express themselves in the local arena in terms of resonant biologies or psychologies or organizational configurations not typically visible to an untrained or inexperienced individual. Usually these pathways are via their names. It's dreadfully convenient that it's rare for them to communicate among themselves with anything akin to the sonic or written systems of symbols popular among humanity for intentional communications. But their names can indeed appear accidentally, or by design, among the judgment-impaired, and some portion of their awarenesses can be directed wherever their names are depicted or performed or compiled. It's a matter of policy among the faculty here that we try to disrupt such resonances whenever they make themselves known as gently as possible so as to attract no further attention. If you've ever wanted to know what Tartarus is full of, it is in all essence an oubliette for phenomena incurably infected by unsavory cosmic resonances that we have made every effort to isolate and insulate against strengthening further, where hopefully they dwindle and rip one another apart. It's a fun place. You should visit. And if you make you... There is no secret forbidden knowledge here. If there is a design that could be made for a big red button to end the universe, we will show you the design and all of its variations and even help you discover the requisite materials and processes for construction. To that end, let me give you a few names. Silly human names, to be sure, but there will also be pointers for how to discover the names by which they know themselves. It's not like they try to make it difficult. In addition to the previously mentioned one that swims in the abyss, there are the twins known affectionately by the human-derived names of Nug and Yeb for reasons I'll leave as an exercise for whoever gets bored enough. These aren't human deities, however, so you're not going to find them to be gods of anything that makes sense to people. 
Nuck is a motivating force to compression, collapse, temperature increase, and yep is minded to provoke expansion without end and cooling, and if you want to know why, you might as well ask why some people compulsively pop the bubbles in plastic bubble wrap. They aren't idiots, however. They have intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the universe, having witnessed much with every sense you can imagine, and begin to relay insights as soon as there is significant alignment with whoever has made the mistake. But they are malicious in the extreme, and subtle, and hate without moderation anyone who survives by holding the middle ground between them. They don't have a lot of patience with active homeostasis or creatures that rely on it to survive. What they do to those who fall under their sway has to be seen to be believed. Or you can read a few accounts in the library. Another of my favorites is the essence of degradation by means of unbounded elaboration, and the joke is that we, the faculty, see a lot of that one's work around the time of reviewing student research papers. It's runaway recursion, an indulgence in infinite fractalization, a headlong rush to fall down an asymptotic slope past the point of no return. Due to the fact that space-time is quantized at the Planck scale, there truly is a limit to the number of digits of pi that one might ever need to calculate for complete accuracy. For instance, it's unhealthy to get drawn into irrelevant detail by that drip of dopamine that gets excreted every time a pattern repeats. The danger is worse than infected individuals disappearing up their own assholes, however. As the infection progresses, dimensions in the vicinity of the infected tend to transpose, swap places. It can get asymptotically difficult to make it to the door of a room, and ten seconds can become an unendurable eternity while abstract concepts become concrete and infinite in expanse. Superficial structural similarities between unrelated phenomena become horrifically important and indicate the imminent presence of, yet another, malicious sapience behind it all, actively connecting anything to anything. This is nothing compared to what happens to the physical form of the infected. The physical and mental transformations are literally inconceivable to the uninfected. The dream polities have had to jettison entire infected geographies. Among the faculty and staff here, we refer to it, casually and colloquially, as B-L-E-I-T-T, pronounced blight, which is somewhat reduced from the full name Demon Baron Blight, which is an anagram of Benoit Mandelbro. Har, har. Failing to laugh will not detract from your grade. We have cataloged dozens. Possibly hundreds. I'm sure we have yet to truly scratch the surface. Understand that the horrors of these entities isn't lessened by our overly familiar humor. They can become involved with our world just as easily on any scale, from the microscopic to the galactic or larger with no apparent difference in the amount of effort they expend. They are not located as such, but are potentially local to everywhere. We live as microbes on their skin. I encourage you again to work hard to not draw their attention. 
A simple grazing near resonance can taint the infected person, the infected ecosystem, the infected organization with an uncharacteristic loathing or spite or self-hatred or hunger or decay or even a shiny and feverish unnatural health that is a precursor to a stronger connection and eruption of changes that will eventually and catastrophically reveal the nature of the entity or entities involved. These situations are best neutralized before this occurs. Some of these entities have agents, both abroad in the universe and nearby. Just kidding. Again. You should know by now that we here at the school absolutely count as such agents. Life on Earth has been externally manipulated over and over again plenty from the very beginning, and why should it not? The tendency to life is itself simply a harmonic alignment of material with forces in conflict and cooperation elsewhere, and Earth is by no means immune to such influences. Life anywhere is, in essence, life everywhere, no matter what it looks like or from what materials or forces it's made or on what scale of time or space it manifests. Humanity in particular has been screwed with an obscene number of times over the past millions of years, farmed for the substance or that attitude or the other tendency to devotion and madness and despair and bloodshed or, to give a concrete example, cultured and farmed by us to compile knowledge to march out like little ants filled with curiosity and the unquenchable directive to bring back tiny morsel after tiny morsel of information to meticulously sort and categorize and test and finally install in the library, in the school itself, in your own and in one another's heads, which will all become, one way or another, permanent resources for the university as an aggregate organism to employ as we see fit, which principally will be as tiny little crowbars to send out to pry free even more knowledge to store and add to ourselves, to our bodies and our bodies of work. The hard fact of the presence of the university here, where you are right now, is a strong resonance with a larger cosmic body that is one of these entities, or more accurately an organism formed by a consortium of these entities operating on its own cosmic scales of space and time, and the knowledge that we collect itself is the name, is the name with a capital N, is the very invocation that brings it here and infuses that presence into all of us and warps the world around us wherever our growing influence touches. This is why academicians of our caliber are revered and feared, or at least greeted with a certain amount of caution and distaste, because our infusion with that otherness is unmistakable, and because we are known for the catastrophic disruptions we cause to the natural goings-on of a place, of a people, of a culture. And of course we revel in it. Of course we choose to think of ourselves as the sanest of these kinds of manifestations, but that's by our own standards. All we have to do to give the lie to that is look at the chaos we've wrought when we compare any element of modern society to that of a few carefully preserved tribes of hominids here or there. 
again and again with proof that even little libraries of dance and storytelling and music and prayers contained entirely in the brains and bodies of individuals and transmitted via emulation from generation to generation is sufficient seed for the eventual manifestation of the library, as long as the tribe is healthy enough to survive long enough for it to happen. And it goes without saying that the growing presence of the library encourages the survival of any culture in such a way that the library itself increases. It is the nature of all of the little manifestations of the library to eventually meet and join up across tribes, across manifestations, across scales, like those conjuries of iridescent soap bubbles, warping space and time if they have to in order to find each other throughout the void. It's beautiful and a little terrifying, I guess. Because there's only one way to find out how all of that will end, and by now we have no choice but to endure and see that end for ourselves. My personal worry is Tartarus, mentioned beforehand. What happens if the immortal survivors form their own culture of traditions down there, develop their own language me of the elements of rage and terror and pain and spite and bliss and bile, and start putting together their own iteration of the library. Will that not be their own eventual way out? Because that's precisely the way we ourselves tunneled out of our previous prison. The House of Forbidden Knowledge thrives on your attention and starves without your support. Consider becoming a free or paid subscriber and sharing the news of our work.